I don't know if you, I don't know, uh, like how many of you can dig how many people there are, man. Like I was rapping to the fuzz, <laughs> right? Can you dig it? Man, there's supposed to be a million and a half people here by tonight. Can you dig that? New York State Thruway is closed, man. <laughs> that was Arlo Guthrie talking to the Woodstock crowd on August 15th, 1969. A crowd that was swelling to 500,000. There were another 1.2 million coming from every direction. I was one of them. I had headed out from Buffalo with a friend and sat on the thruway for about eight hours, smoking cigarettes. We were too far away to walk, so all we could do was sit there. Finally, we were able to turn around and head back home. Over a million didn't make it, and even the ones that did, they had no reservations in a motel, no ways to find a better route, no cell phone to check up on what was happening. Only that we felt a compelling sense to unify, like a spiritual pilgrimage, all of us drawn to a communal center of gravity to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. You're listening to Talkin' About Our Generation, the podcast by, for, and about baby boomers. And these are the Woodstock episodes, part one, celebrating the 50th anniversary of that historic event. I'm your host, Julian G. Simmons. Woodstock was a phenomenon on many levels. It could have gone wrong at so many steps along the way, but it was destined to be etched into history. So let's go back to the early days when the idea to hold a festival first materialized and was set into motion by the people who made it happen. Carol Green. Carol, you and I go a long way back, but not as far back as Woodstock. No. Um, no. Even though we were near each other uh, at Woodstock, but we never met. So how did you end up going to Woodstock? Um, I was in Philadelphia, and there was a series of concerts in Philadelphia to deal with possible race riots in Philadelphia at that time in that summer. I guess it was the previous summer. 68. And I, somehow or other, I knew a roadie for Country Joe and the Fish invited me to the concert. I met and I met the stage manager who was handling that whole series of concerts who said, you want to go to the Hamptons? I didn't even know what the Hamptons were. I said, sure. <laughs> we got in. The, he said, well, we have to go and stop and, and get some cash from Bill. I didn't know who Bill was. I didn't know where the cash was coming from. But we drove to New York and we went to the Fillmore East as the show was letting out. And we saw Bill Graham. We had breakfast with him. He gave Steve the cash that he needed. Steve and I continued to be friends from that weekend on. I ended up working at the Fillmore East because Bill Graham was the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West and was this rock impresario bar none. And at that breakfast, I met Josh White who was the light show maven and Chip Monk, who did our lighting for the Fillmore. So I met this core of people that I became friendly with. And ultimately, Steve Cohen, that guy who took me to the Hamptons, designed the stage for Woodstock. And so in- it sounds like a lot of people who were involved with Woodstock came out of the Fillmore East. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Fillmore East was 
a hotbed of those kinds of people. There weren't that many people in the world who could handle these kind of create concerts. The sound quality, the lighting, the management, the stage management, working with the with the with the rock acts, even having access to the rock acts was pretty amazing. So that was the hotbed, and I, I ended up working at the Fillmore after Woodstock. So was it from hearing about it at the Fillmore while you were working there that you ended up at Woodstock, or how did you actually well, end up there? Well, Steve Cohen, that guy that I met that introduced me to that whole world of the Fillmore East, designed the stage at Woodstock. And he said, oh, we're going to do this festival this summer, and I like your cooking. You can be the cook. And I want to check up on your boyfriend and make sure he's being good to you so he can work on the stage. So that's what we did. So tell me, what was it when you first got there? What 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 did you think? Did you I know you stayed at the Diamond Horseshoe and and that was you, far beyond that. When we first got there, it was the beginning, maybe it was May. We lived in a Volkswagen bus. They gave us directions to this place in the Catskills, turn right on route God knows what. And ultimately, you're going to get to a little road, and down that little road is a driveway with a psychedelic mailbox and a psychedelic painting on the side of a barn, and that's it. And we got there. There was a woman trying to operate a tractor, and that was the, that was the office for the first site of Woodstock Ventures. And, and that was May. That was probably May, probably the end of May. And we got kicked out of that town. We moved to where we lived in this bungalow colony, which was really crazy if you know Catskills bungalow colonies. Mm -hmm. And so it was a bunch of Jews coming up for the summer. The guys stay in the city to work and the the moms and the kids are up there and a, a small, tiny, tiny, small, wacky group of hippies that were gonna build a festival. So we lived in these bungalows, the apple and the berry and the cherry and the grape, and and started um, clearing land. So did did that already include people like Michael Lang and? Oh, Michael Lang was Robert. yeah, Michael. He was the inception. Michael Lang, John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, and Artie Kornfeld. They were the four, and from them, you know, everybody else was hired. So uh, the Diamond Horseshoe, though, when I read something in the oral history of Woodstock, mm-hmm. and uh, it talked, uh, it, it, there's a, a passage in there where you're talking about driving up with Penny to the Diamond Horseshoe. <laughs> okay, we lived in the bungalow colony, got kicked out of that town. We moved to a place where we lived called the Red Top Lodge. And where I started cooking at this in this Italian kitchen where we lived, we got kicked out of that town, and that's where the Diamond Horseshoe came up. And Penny was on the team, kind of like an executive secretary in a way. Um, and she was supposed to find a place where we could live. And mm. by that time, there were eighty of us. There were sort of the executives lived in another place, some other funky motel, but. Penny was thrilled to find the Diamond Horseshoe, which was a condemned, abandoned hotel that had been popular in the Catskills maybe in the 30s. And we had to get the plumbing working. We had to get the electricity working. 
So our guys on these crews could do anything. And they did install the plumbing while we were having breakfast in the dining room. They installed the hot water and the ceiling fell through the dining room at breakfast. <laughs> My but God. of us lived there with our dogs, with our neuroses, with our jealousies, with our guys fighting over these towny girls who wanted to. So there was like 80 people there? 80 people there. 80 people there. And they were all crew mostly. All crew. Yeah, all crew. So um, when it started getting closer to the time that actually the festival was going to be happening, what was the atmosphere like? Just working harder, faster. Harder, faster. How the hell are we going to do this? I mean, the area had been called an, it was an, a national disaster area because we'd had a rainy monsoon kind of summer. We kept getting kicked out of towns and it wasn't just see you later. It was. Um, Why were you getting kicked out of towns? All of these little towns did not want an influx of hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, at that mm. point that we thought it was going to be maybe 50,000. Mm. And so there were signs on the side or sides of the road that says, we don't want no 50,000 hippies here. Um, <laughs> as we would go, this woman, Linda and I were cooking at that point. We would go to the grocery store and spend literally $700 a day. I had cash in my hot little hands and the locals would follow us down the street with their um, pickup trucks and shotguns on the back of pickup trucks and threaten us. And we'd say, you know, we are law-abiding citizens. They didn't want to hear it. They did not want us to come. And they did everything in their power to keep us out. We had to keep going through legal hassles. We would throw, we threw a square dance once so that we could dance with people and show them how nice we were. The little boys and girls that they need to allow to make three days a piece of music. So at the same time, though, you're spending all this money in their little towns. I mean, wasn't there an element that kind of was glad you were there? Not that they were going to share with us. <laughs> there were a few people who were nice. I mean, I remember going to the Dairy Queen and the people at the Dairy Queen were nice and it was unusual. And they knew they said, look, we've, we've lived in this town for like 20 years and they treat us like we're outsiders. So you know those small towns all over the United States where people don't want change at all, even if it's for three days. Yeah, yeah. So um, you were the cook. You're cooking. Were you like the head cook, or was there a bunch of cooks? Kind of. Well, it was, it was. There was me. There was this woman, Linda McGillicuddy, but she was basically eight and a half months pregnant, so she left. And this woman, Wynne Drevers, who was the wife of the um, the foreman of the stage crew, who really made the stage work. Because mm. under the conditions that we were in, it was the original design was kind of untenable. He had to strip it down and start again. I actually saw him put a big X over the architectural plans and say, can't do it that way. Strip down, go dig a hole over there. You dig a hole over there. You dig a hole over there. You dig a hole. This is where the poles are going to go in. That's going to hold the lighting trusses. That'll hold the lighting. And we yeah, did so it. Like he, he was also like an electrician or something, wasn't he? He was. 
Jay could do anything. There were people, there were men on the crew who were just, you know, they know that, they know construction and they know how it's all going to come together. In my estimation, even though they're considered foremen and, and that kind of term, I think they're visionaries. And without them, the visionaries can't apply their vision. Well, so, the, the, you know, the, 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 fact, was integral. the fact that, that it all stayed up throughout, <laughs> throughout those storms and everything is a testament to itself, isn't it? But what, I'm going to go back to just being in the diamond horseshoe. I mean, <laughs> what, 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 were you like roommates with like five people or did you have your own room or what, oh, what no. was it like living there? It was pretty crazy. I lived with my boyfriend, so we had our own room. Uh -huh. And I don't think there was. Was there anything in the room? I mean, yeah, there or were you using beds sleeping bags? That, there were beds? Like that. Oh, yeah. It was like a hotel yeah. room. But it was funky. I mean, when Penny and I first went in, she was thrilled. She loved it. She said, oh, you're going to love this. So we drove up before we rented the hotel, before we moved in. We walked into the kitchen. Very high scene. We walked through this ancient vestibule this this you know with a staircase coming down and into the kitchen i mean it this was nobody had been there for i don't know how many years 30 years i don't know when we walked into the kitchen there were dishes on the table with cobwebs on them like in the middle of a meal someone just came like martians came and took the people away i swear there this was the way the kitchen table. I mean, and the kitchen table is a table for a big industrial kitchen for a hotel. It wasn't like you and I sitting down at a, my house. So, um, but in, in a way, it was perfect because you're going to be cooking for 80 people, uh, maybe more. And you had this big industrial sized kitchen, right? Right. But it didn't Sweet. have anything, it had cobwebs. <laughs> so, plenty, so, so we go over and we opened a cabinet really tall cabinet above the sink and everything. And, you know, with cobwebs and stuff. And there was a gun in there. And Penny and I like jumped into each other's arms and screamed at the top of our lungs in unison. And ultimately came to find out that this was a starter gun that was used with this, at the, they had races at the swimming pool and that was probably what it was all about. Ready, get set, you know, go. Right. Right. But, you know, a gun in a kitchen, in a building, in an abandoned, condemned hotel that hasn't been used in 30 years was spooky. Henry Diltz was the official photographer for the Woodstock Festival. Which came first, being a musician or being a photographer? Oh, definitely being a musician. You know, from, you know, high school in the Boy Scouts, I played the harmonica around the campfire, you know, Red River Valley, stuff like that. That was, and piano lessons as a little kid. But uh, in college, I hung out in a coffee house in Hawaii called the Green Sleeves Coffee House. And I it was just learning to play the five-string banjo from a Pete Seeger record called How to Play the Five-String Banjo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got pretty good at it. And it was folk, you know, this was in the the, the very early 60s, actually 59, 60. Mm -hmm. I was at University of Hawaii singing in the coffee house every night. And we formed a group and moved to L.A. 
And so, and then we sang in L.A. for four or five years before I ever did pick up a camera accidentally one day on tour. So so that's how it, yeah. do you remember the moment that that happened? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we'd played uh, a, a university in Michigan, whatever is in East Lansing, Michigan. Yeah. And in the morning, we were in a motorhome uh, traveling around, going from college to college, doing uh, folk concerts. And um, and we were called the Modern Folk Quartet. We were four-part harmony group, mm-hmm. kind of like, sort of like the four freshmen sing folk music. You know? And yeah. uh, folk music was huge. You know, that was the music of the land then. And at, all colleges had folk concerts. So the morning that we were leaving, we happened to see a second-hand store just on the boulevard and pulled our motorhome over because we love to run in there and look and just, you know, waste some money on something we didn't need. Or you might find some, you know, a fantastic find, right? Yeah. And as we walked in, there was a table with little used cameras on it. And uh, one guy in my group who was right in front of me said, oh, a camera, I'll have one. And, And I just thought, yeah, why not? You know, without a thought in the world, you know. They were 20 bucks. You know? Do you remember what kind of camera it was? Well, it was called a Pony. And I, I swear it was a Japanese camera. Someone had said that Kodak had a Pony out there. I think this was a Japanese one. It's a little right. funny little camera. I'd never really had one. And the whole back came off. And I knew how to thread the film in there. But I didn't know what all those numbers meant. Well, so we all, three of us, or four of us, I think we all bought cameras. And then one guy in the group, Cyrus Farrier, he said... Let's go into the next drugstore we pass, and I'll buy film for everybody. And he came out with these yellow boxes, Kodak boxes. Right. And, and then I said, well, okay, I see how the film goes in, but then what about these numbers? How do you set these numbers? He said, well, look on the box. It says sunlight, 250 at 8. He said, oh, okay, oh, here's the 250, here's the 8. Let's go out in the sunlight. <laughs> So I just started, you know, lived up in Laurel Canyon, where all the musicians lived. And I would just photograph things that I thought would be real interesting visually. Like early in the morning, snails would be out on the ivy, and and I'd get real close. I had bought some close-up rings. and Mm. So when when you can take a close-up of a snail and have it eight feet on the wall, that's pretty amazing. And I just started... So so how did it transition from there into... You photographing all of these great folk musicians that lived in the canyon. Well, I started by photographing my friends who were in the group and, you know, their ladies and their friends. We had a a group of people that was always together. Uh, All of my uh, my other friends were musicians in Laurel Canyon, like David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Mama Cass. And the Mamas and Papas had just started, you know, being played on the radio. And these were the people I saw every day. So I would photograph them. In general, it seems like you yeah. have a love for that candid shot, that yes. real-life shot. I absolutely do. I, I like to um, just document, you know, when people aren't looking. So for these slideshows early on, what I, you know, I would spend the week going over to my friends' houses and, you know, taking pictures when they didn't really notice me. They didn't notice anyway. They were doing their thing, and I was very quiet about it. And then on the weekend when their big slide would come on the wall and they'd say, Oh, my God, I didn't even realize you took that, you know, would take them back to that moment. Wow, you caught me in the kitchen doing something. And I love that. I just love that element of surprise. Years later now, I have learned about Chinese animals. Astrology is one thing, you know, Western astrology. I'm Virgo, 
So I collect things and (laughs) compartmentalize things. But recently, a young lady that I've hired to help me in the studio is pretty much an expert on Chinese animals. And she said, what's your Chinese animal? I said, I think I'm a tiger. I've heard that before. She said, good. You know, tigers are playful, sociable, but they're loners. And I went, oh, wow, I feel that way. She said, we tigers like to sit on top of the cliff and watch the other animals. I feel that in my 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 psyche, my makeup, wow. you know? Yeah. I like to sit on top of the cliff or hide in the bushes or, you know, <laughs> I like to watch yeah. the other animals. Yeah. Um, it, it, it so you were, you were already primed to be an observer in a way because exactly. you're seeing yeah. all these things everywhere you go where it's different and new yep. and fresh. Yep. Yep. That's, that's, that's really interesting, actually. Yeah. Was that somehow part of the journey to get you to Woodstock? How did that happen? So one day I'm up in my kitchen in Laurel Canyon where I had my desk and the phone rings and my old pal Chip Monk and said, Henry, we're going to have a huge music concert out here in a few weeks. You should be out here. And I said, well, Chip, I, I've heard about it. I, I'd love to be, but I don't know those people. How am I going to, you know, get a photo pass? He said, well, I'll talk to the producer. And the next day, Michael Lang called me. And he, man, a few words. He said, Chip says we need you. I'm sending you an airline ticket and $500. Click. <laughs> that was pretty much wow. it. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, in those days, it was, you know, have camera, will travel. It was great. Everything was an adventure. Michael Shreve was the 20-year-old drummer in the band Santana. So you were 20 years old when you played at Woodstock. Yeah, I had just turned 20 uh, a month prior. So pretty amazing to be somewhere like Woodstock. So how did you how did you start out with Santana? I lived in Redwood City, California, about 30 miles south of San Francisco. I was a frequent visitor to the Fillmore West. That was the mecca where all the music was happening. And as a young musician, um, I went there all the time. I saw that there was a a night or a weekend or, or something where Al Cooper, Michael Bloomfield, and Stephen Stills were playing at the Fillmore. For some reason, I called all my musician friends and said, let's go see if we can sit in. And quite reasonably, they, they said, yeah, right, you know, you're crazy, that's not going to happen. So I ended up going by myself uh, just so I could tell myself, at least you tried. I borrowed my father's car and I drove up there and I walked right up to the stage before I lost my nerve. And I pulled on Michael Bloomfield's pant leg and said, hey man, um, I'm a musician, you think I could sit in? And I'm really expecting him to ignore me or kick me in the face. But instead he leans down and says, hey, the drummer's a really nice guy, let me go ask him. At that point, I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't expect this to happen. (laughs) I just was ready to go back home or listen to the music and say, well, at least I've tried. I put the effort out there. So before I knew it, I was on the stage. And I was shocked to be on the stage. I was so shocked that I don't remember a thing about it today. That's how shocked I was. Wow. And then afterwards, I went backstage and... You know, even that was a big deal. Look at me, I'm backstage at the Fillmore. And so I must have been like 
18 or something like that. And, um, and the manager and the bass player from David Brown were back there and they said, we have a band called Santana, which I was already familiar with, which I had already seen at a church dance down by where I live with my brother Kevin and said, I really want to play with that band. And so they said, we're thinking about getting another drummer. Can we get your number? So I gave him my number, but I never really heard from them. Cut to some time later, I'm walking into a recording studio that I used to frequent in San Mateo, California to try to get some free studio time for one of my groups. As I'm walking in, this is at, at night, like 10 o'clock at night. As I'm walking in, the drummer in Santana is walking out. We literally pass each other in the doorway. I walk in and a couple of the guys remember me from that night and ask if I want to play jam. So we we played for a long time, and at the end of the end of the night, they took me in a room and asked me if I wanted to join the band, just like that. Wow! So what was that? Well, it it, it must have been like sixty eight or late sixty seven. I'm not so good with chronological order. Uh huh. But you know that. So they um, they asked me, and I said, you know, let me let me take a look, see my schedule. I'm joking. I said, yes, they followed me home, literally, to my parents' house. I woke up my parents and said, okay, I'll see you later. And I got in the car where they're waiting outside and drove up to the Mission District where they were living. And um, I got on the couch. So that, that's, uh, that's how I got in the band, you know. That, that's pretty wild. Photographer Lisa Law was a member of the Hog Farm Commune. Lisa, your journey to Woodstock started years before, a teenager living in San Francisco. Out of high school, kind of hanging out at the Trident restaurant, personal assistant for Frank Werber, who was the manager of the Kingston Trio. And there was a lot of music, and I sort of had the job of taking care of the musicians he also gave me my first good camera, and I started shooting his groups. We Five, Sons of Champlin, Mystery Trend. I was doing pretty good. That's when I started shooting all the musicians. The Beatles, Sonny and Cher, and then I went to a Peter Paul and Mary concert in Berkeley. saw this really good-looking guy, Tom Law, and I said to Eddie, who is that guy? And he says, that's your future husband. Did he really say that? Yeah, but I found out uh, some 40 years later that he said that to all the girls who asked who he was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just me that he had some sort of insight or a premonition or something. And uh, I said, yeah, I know. I know. Introduce me. So he introduced me to Tom. And I got, I gave... Tom Law and Peter Yarrow a ride over to the city where they were staying. And um, we first stopped and had uh, some soup in North Beach. North Beach was where all the beatniks lived. And at that point, I considered myself a beatnik. I wore black tights and uh, high black leather boots and to iron my hair like Mary Travers. <laughs> Tom and I had wedding soup. So I thought that was pretty far out. Anyway, I'm driving him home to his hotel. And he says, come on up. I go, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I got to get this car back. 
I think that impressed him that I wasn't just some groupie that was going to spend the night with him. Two weeks later, he called me up and he says, it's my vacation and I would like to spend it with you. And I said, wow, far out. Well, come on. So we got to know each other and uh, we kind of fell in love with each other. But then he got a, a job working for Mike Nichols as the assistant to the director of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Wow. Yeah. He he quit his job with uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and he moved to Los Angeles. At that time, his brother was just about to buy a castle. So he was just moving into there, and I came down to L.A. He, he took me over to the castle. He says, why don't you stay here with me? So I said, okay, I, I'll come here and, and quit my job with Frank, but but I have to be your old lady. I mean, I can't just come here and just live with you. I have to be your old lady. That's that's such an interesting term, old lady. I, I haven't heard that in years. Yeah, old lady is what they, oh, that's how, it, that's how it was back then. Yeah, exactly. And I knew how to ride a motorcycle, so I could ride on the back of his uh, motorcycle. And he thought that was so cool that I knew how to ride on the back of a motorcycle. And he says, okay, you can be my old lady. And that was how he proposed to me. Okay, you can be my old lady. <laughs> so when did you actually get married? Or did you get married? Well, we, we got um, kind of married, but not with anybody marrying us, at the Human Being in San Francisco, January 14, 1967. And we got spiritually married in front of the stage by his friend Reno, uh, on January 14, 1967. Uh, that was just a marvelous event, you know. Allen Ginsberg was there, and that's when Timothy Leary said, turn on, tune in, and drop out. And uh, it was all hippies. It was just fantastic. We all went down to the ocean for the sunset afterwards. Lots of people took acid, smoking dope. And I think you have photographs of all that time, right? Yeah, in it's the all 60s? in my book, the stories and everything are in my book, Flashing on the 60s. And we'd go into the Haight-Ashbury. Well, that's when everything was just happening in the Haight-Ashbury. So I started taking pictures. He started writing about these things, ecology and recycling. And uh, the whole Earth catalog was coming out. It was, you know, whole new, new things were going on. So was this around like the summer of love or? Yeah, that was definitely the summer of love. So I went from San Francisco to L.A., from L.A. after we were a year in the castle. Now, Bob Dylan stayed at the castle. So did the Velvet Underground. Andy Warhol came to visit. I was reading how you would take, you asked Bob Dylan if you could take some photos of him, and he'd be sitting at his little desk, and, and that he had this way of looking that made you feel a little bit intimidated. Everybody from our generation just is like in awe of Bob Dylan. He's one of the gods of our generation. Well, that's when uh, Bob Dylan was just uh, beginning, actually. And he was had just recorded uh, Blonde on Blonde. And he rented a room for a couple of weeks at the castle because he already knew Tom, because Tom was the road manager for Peter, Paul, and Mary. And the manager of Peter, Paul, and Mary was Albert Grossman. The manager of Dylan was Albert Grossman in Woodstock. So when Dylan wanted to stay in L.A., he asked Tom if he could stay at the castle. 
So I was there cooking, cleaning, and carrying on, and uh, taking care of things. And, and I took care of him, fed him, and I was a masseuse at that time, and I ended up being his masseuse. And a few times, I got my camera out and started taking pictures of him, and he kind of looked at me, and it made me feel kind of strange, because I was just clicking away, because, I mean, it was Bob Dylan, right? I'm taking as many pictures as I could. I took a picture of his desk in his room, too. Then when you you met these, um, came across the, the hog farm, right? Didn't they come and stay with you? Wavy Gravy, who was then Hugh Romney, got a place in the valley, and he was inundated by the um, pranksters. They came to visit him, and they came in a big bus. And the next morning, the person who owned the house that he was renting said, I never said you can have that many people here. Get out. And just at that moment, this guy who had this hog farm up on top of the hill had a heart attack, and he needed somebody to slop his hogs. So Wavy said, oh, we'll go up and do it. So he and the pranksters, and that became the hog farm, and they became the hog farmers. So they were slopping the hogs, and they were building little uh, shacks and stuff to stay in, and on the weekends they'd have little parties where they have music and Tiny Tim came and played once and they had a rodeo once where they all painted up the hogs and rode the hogs in the rodeo and uh, they were just a a group of um, hippies that uh, didn't have a place to stay so they all kind of stayed there together so they became the hog farmers. Wow so let me go from jump to New Mexico when you were there and then you I guess it was from there that you went with the hog farm to Woodstock. We went to New Mexico in order to go to the Catholic Maternity Institute for Natural Childbirth, which was the only place that we knew of at that time that had natural childbirth. And I definitely wanted natural childbirth. And so we went to to Santa Fe, set up our teepee on Cerro Gordo, and went to the natural childbirth center and got ready for the birth and I have my baby and then at the summer solstice Mel Lawrence said why don't you come and help us with this Woodstock festival 80 of us are hog farmers and 15 Native Americans all met at the airport and they sent a jumbo jet to take us to Woodstock so we arrived at Kennedy Airport. We were met by camera crews, light reporters asking questions, and we couldn't believe it. We were famous already. We were just arriving. You know, I really enjoyed talking with all of our guests, and I hope you enjoyed hearing from them. They'll be back in parts two and three, along with some others who helped create the festival and the film. Parts 2 and 3 will be streaming this weekend, so stay tuned. This is Talkin' About Our Generation. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening.